to um, begin this morning by just acknowledging uh, Pastor Glenn for what I think will go down in history in this church as possibly the best ever introduction to a, a new associate pastor. So for those of you who were here last week, you might remember that Pastor Glenn ended his message talking about a story about a fictitious church who were seeking to call a new pastor. And he went through a whole long list of all of the greats in the Bible and giving examples of flaws in their character um, as to why they were not suitable. And the only one who had the impeccable qualifications was, was Judas. And he finished his message by saying, and Judas will be preaching next week. <laughs> now, unfortunately, judging by the conversations that I was having with a lot of you out in the hall during morning tea, most people didn't hear the bit about fictitious church and just heard Judas will be preaching next week. So um, I took the liberty to give Pastor Glenn a very hard time about this in the office during the week and uh, the look on his face, kind of, he just kind of went white and then looking for reassurance he looked to Rose and he said, Rose, what did you hear me say? She said, oh, Pastor Glenn, I leaned over to Wes and I said, why is he saying that about Caroline preaching next week? <laughs> and so he turned behind him to Meng Mui, who sits behind him, and I could tell he was thinking, oh, Meng Mui, she knows me very well, she understands me. And so he turned to Meng Mui and said, Meng Mui, what did you hear? And she said, I heard Judas will be preaching next week, <laughs> but it was okay because I didn't know who was preaching next week. <laughs> And Pastor Glenn just had this sick look on his face. But anyway, he has served to set the bar very low for me this morning. So I figure that all I have to do this morning is just not betray anyone to death. And I'll be right. So, so we're going to begin this morning with um, a little poll, okay? So if you've been worshipping here for more than 10 years... I'd like you to put your hand up nice and high. So look at all these faithful people who year in, year out have stood by this church through all of its ups and downs and are still worshipping with us this morning. So if you have come to us in the last 10 years and joined with us, please put your hand up high. Look at all these people that, that God has brought with us to join with us in the last 10 years. Now I want to go back to that first group of people. If you were in that first group of people, I want you to think back eight to 10 years and put your hand up nice and high only if eight to 10 years ago you foresaw what was standing in front of you today and you said, there's our next associate pastor. No hands up high, that's kind of what I thought. But don't feel bad because neither did I 10 years ago. And to all of us, collectively, I say surprise. Such is life in the kingdom of God, isn't it? You know, the Bible is full of surprises. A shepherd boy becomes a king. An orphan girl becomes a queen and manages to save a nation in the process. Waters part, and God's people walk through. Daniel, 
He spends a night with lions and lives to tell the tale. Jonah, he camps out in the belly of a fish and also lives to tell the tale. God comes to earth and is found by a bunch of shepherds, tiny and helpless, in an animal feeding trough. That baby grows up and becomes the man, Jesus, and he too is full of lots of surprises. The lame are healed, the blind can see, water is turned into wine, sins are forgiven, even death could not hold him down. For followers of God, it would seem that surprises are not so surprising. In fact, they're the norm. And so we come to today's passage, and it's one that I enjoy because it's chock full of surprises. And it has so much to teach us about following God and about allowing his Holy Spirit to direct our paths. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 16, we're going to begin from verse um, 6. And we've got it up there for you, those of you that haven't got Bibles with you. Now as we read it, we're going to look for some of these little surprises because there's quite a few of them um, throughout this passage. So Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Fergia and Galatia, having been kept, there's our first surprise, by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but, another surprise, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia, another one, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women, not the men, who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God and the Lord had opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to come to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, just so we all sort of have some sort of bearing of, of where we are here. So, um, in Paul's first missionary journey, he sort of travelled around this area here, mainly visiting these churches here, but also through here. Um, and this is what they, they plan to do on this second journey. They plan to go back, uh, visit some of these churches again and strengthen them, 
And then they plan to sort of evangelise right through this whole area here, which, which kind of makes a lot of sense, to just keep going and see this whole area evangelised. So what actually happened was they set out. Um, they did go and visit some of these churches. And then when they got there, they planned to go across to Asia. But our reading told us that the Spirit would not allow them to do that. So they ended up having to travel through Galatia and through Fergia and they got to Mycenae here. When they got there, they then planned to go up to Bithynia. They thought that was the next logical place to go. But again, the Spirit of God prevented them. So they went on to Troas, crossed here to this little island of Samothrace where they just spent overnight. Then they moved on to this port city here, Neapolis, and on to Philippi, which is a, just a short distance there. So the passage begins with Paul and Silas travelling through these regions of Fergia and Galatia because we're told the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in Asia. Now, how they perceived this constraint by the Holy Spirit, we're not told. It's possible it came via a word of prophecy because both Paul and Silas were known to prophesy, um, as was Timothy, who had um, joined them when they were in Lystra. You can see Lystra on the map there. It may have been by prophecy, but it may not. We don't know. Perhaps there was some sort of physical constraint or some other circumstance that we're not told about. All we're told is that that opportunity to speak in Asia was somehow withheld from them. So what did they do? What would we do? Some of us would perhaps sit and sulk, angry that our plans had been thwarted. Some of us would perhaps try and force our way in, regardless, because we had a plan and it was a good plan and it was, we were working for God, so we'll plough on regardless. And perhaps others would use the lack of any clear guidance at this point as an excuse to just do nothing. Well, this is not, of course, what Paul and Silas did. They travelled on through Fergia and Galatia into Mycenae, where they then tried to enter Bithynia, and again, the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. Which brings us to our first lesson. It's important never to lose sight of whose ministry it really is. Notice how here Luke is using the terms Holy Spirit and Spirit of Jesus interchangeably. So he's emphasising not only the oneness of the Trinity, but also the role of Jesus in their ministry. Here Jesus is seen as an active partner in the ministry, and the ministry itself is a continuation of the earthly ministry of, of Jesus. And sometimes I forget, think we forget that when we get bogged down in the day-to-day -day business of, of getting the job done. None of the ministries that take place here in this building are really ours, not one of them. They all belong to Jesus and we merely partner with him through the Holy Spirit to continue his work on earth. It's a responsibility and it's also a very great privilege, but we do well to keep things in perspective by remembering whose ministry it really is. So with their plans thwarted for a second time, preventing them from entering Bithynia, their response comes in verse 8. 
which is a much overlooked verse in this passage because it says quite simply, so they passed by Mycenae and went on to the city of Troas. Twice their plans were thwarted, twice they simply moved on. There was no sulking, no forcing their own way and certainly no sitting around. Which brings us to lesson two. You don't need a special word from God to do the will of God. And I would add to that, it just helps to stay very close to God. There are times when a special word comes and it can be through a vision or a voice or a revelation of some kind and when that happens, to the people that that happens to, it is amazing and it is life-changing. But this passage shows us that those are the exceptions. They're not the gen- it's not the general rule for followers of God. Many Christians become paralysed, waiting uh, to know God's specific plan and will for their lives, waiting for divine guidance in every single decision that they make. Not Paul and Silas. That's not the example they give. They had their commission, <coughs> and as recipients of the Holy Spirit, they were to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they set about doing that. And since the commission hasn't changed, that's exactly what we should be doing too. We don't need a special word from God to go out and do the will of God. In fact, we already have a special word from God. It's called the Bible. And if you want to know God's will for your life, start reading it, keep praying, and quit waiting for a bolt of lightning to hit you as an individual. So our travellers in this story reach Troas. And from there, they go across to Samothrace, they overnight there, and then on to the port city of Neapolis, and then the relatively short distance on to Philippi. Now, Philippi was an important city. It was known for its agriculture and its strategic commercial location because it was on both sea routes and land routes. So it was a very important city at the time. It was also very rich with gold which is partly why the Romans liked it so much. Um, and it also had a very well-known medical school there, uh, which had sent graduates out to much of the, the known world at that time, which is also why we think Luke was probably familiar with this city. Being a doctor, it's quite likely that he studied at the medical school there. Philippi was also known for its status as a Roman colony, and they were quite proud to be a colony of, of Rome. Now, whilst Paul is remembered by most of us for his ministry among the Gentiles, his normal modus operandi upon entering a new town was not to go and seek out the Gentiles. Instead, he would go and find the synagogue and begin teaching and engaging in discussions there amongst the Jews. The problem was in Philippi, there was no synagogue. You see, in order for a city to have a synagogue, a quorum of at least 10 male Jews was required. 
So it would seem that Philippi probably didn't meet that quorum since there is no synagogue recorded in that city. In addition, just a short while earlier, uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And so it's likely that after hearing of Claudius doing this and uh, wanting to gain favour with Rome, it's likely that the, the rulers in Philippi would have either expelled the Jews from their city or if not, at least made life very difficult for those um, that remained. So in the absence of a synagogue, Paul and his co-workers head outside the city to the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. Why might you expect to find a place of prayer outside the city by a river? Well, perhaps it was just logic on their part. If there is no synagogue, where are the Jews likely to go? They're likely to go where there's water because water is required for their ritual washing and cleansing. It may have been that that took them there or it may have quite simply been that Luke was familiar with the city and knew where the Jews or God-fearing people would gather. <clears throat> Whatever their reasoning, any plans to teach in the synagogue were abandoned and they head outside the city gates and down to the river. Which brings us to lesson three. We always need to be prepared to set aside whatever plans we might have um, for God's plans. We all have our preferred ways of doing ministry, don't we? The way that is most comfortable and most familiar with us. We have our particular people that we prefer to work with and we like to make our plans and stick with them. And most of us like things, if we're honest, we like things done our own way. And sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. It's exactly what's needed for a particular time and a particular place. God gave us all intellect and he expects us to use it. But we need to be careful to ensure that our way and our plans don't exclude the Holy Spirit. We need to keep a very loose grip on those plans so that we can cast them aside just as easily as Paul did. So far three times already in this passage at the Spirit's leading. We see only a tiny part of the picture. God sees the whole thing. And we need to be prepared to set aside our plans to make way for his. Now, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> if I see a Macedonian man in a vision urging me to come to Macedonia, I'm going to be expecting to find him when I get to Macedonia. In fact, I'm going to want him to be at the port there meeting me when I step off the boat. <clears throat> and if he's not there, I'll probably spend most of the rest of my time in Macedonia looking for this man that I've seen in my vision. But in Paul's case, he wasn't there. In fact, it would seem there weren't many Jewish or God-fearing males there at all. Instead, by the river, Paul and his companions find a group of women who had gathered there for prayer. We must always be prepared to expect the unexpected and have God challenge what we believe is our right way of doing things. If Paul and his companions were disappointed by what they found, it doesn't come through in the text. Instead, rather than being disappointed, Paul and his companions sit down 
and begin working with those that God put before them, a group of Gentile women who it seems had heard about the God of Abraham from the Jewish exiles in Philippi and as a result had become God-fearers and were living by the Jewish laws of the day, celebrating the Jewish festivals and customs, but as yet they did not know about Christ. There was no Macedonian man. Instead, they found women of faith who were ready for the gospel. And there is so much to admire about these women that they found there. If ever you feel like giving up, if ever there was a reason to give up, these women had it. The men weren't there. The church didn't exist. There was no synagogue. And yet here they were, Jews and God-fearers, in a city under Roman rule, enduring persecution, and yet still they come and gather to meet at the river to practice their faith and to pray. Just think of some of the things that hold us back from gathering here on a Sunday. They had this huge combination of things that were against them and yet still it was important for them to gather together. Their commitment would put many of us to shame. And so here we find Paul, a former Jewish Pharisee, a persecutor of the early church, sitting beside a river, teaching Gentile women about Jesus on the Sabbath. Surprise, 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 surprise. As God followers, we must always be willing to expect the unexpected from God. Now, one of those women down by the river was Lydia. <clears throat> and all that we know of Lydia, we know from this passage. She was a God-fearer, probably a Gentile convert to uh, Judaism. She was from Thyatira, which ironically is in Asia, that little area that uh, Paul had wanted to visit. Uh, she was a businesswoman selling purple cloth for a living. And from that, we can infer that she was a, whim, a woman of quite some considerable wealth. Um, because Tyrian purple, the colour that was used to make those dyes, was and remains to this day the most expensive pigment you can buy in the world. It's extracted from... Um, the shell, uh, the, the animal which lives inside those shells. Um, so the murex sea snail. And it's said that, it's requ that they require secretion from approximately 10,000 of those sea snails to produce one gram of the coloured purple pigment. A pigment which was prized for its striking colour but also its resistance to fading. It was said to actually get brighter the more sunlight um, wore that, that cloth. <coughs> and it was literally worth its weight in gold. Today it's worth nearly $6,000 per gram. But fortunately for us and for the sea snails, um, today we have managed to find other ways of generating purple dye um, that doesn't require the services of sea snails. So today it's not just royalty and nobility that can wear purple. Now Lydia also seems to have been the head of her household. And it's therefore likely that she had no surviving adult male relative and was probably a widow. And here in Lydia, we find, at least in part, 
the reason for the Holy Spirit's rerouting of Paul's second missionary journey because we're told the Lord had opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. He had her ready and waiting for him. And Lydia became the first European convert to Christianity. She was the first recorded Christian in all of Europe. And since verse 40, a little later on from our reading, tells us that the Philippian church met in her home, she is the most likely person um, to have led and cared for that congregation, given that she was the head of the household. The fact that Luke names Lydia at all is significant, given that none of the other Philippian converts are named in Acts, and this also points to the fact that she was likely very prominent in the church in Philippi. She would have been very well known. Which brings us to lesson five. God will use who he will, when he will, um, to do his will. And it's not up to us to decide. We look back on this passage of scripture and we think how wonderful that the Holy Spirit would lead the Apostle Paul in this way to plant a church in Philippi and open up all of Europe to the gospel. But the Apostle himself gives us quite another perspective on this. You see, some years later, roughly 10 years later on, from that first encounter by the river outside the city gates, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter from a Roman prison cell to the Philippian church. We know that letter as Philippians, and we have it um, in our Bibles in the New Testament. Now, even just a cursory look at that letter will tell you that it's obvious from Paul's unusually affectionate writing, if you compare it to all of his other letters, Philippians is unusually, he uses an unusually affectionate tone. Um, and we can tell from that that this particular church in Philippi was very near and dear to the Apostle's heart. And indeed, he had an enduring partnership with this church at Philippi. They not only ministered with Paul, they ministered to Paul. And their ongoing support of him, financially and through prayer and other support, was a source of great encouragement to him. And you can see uh, some of the words up on the screen that he has written in that letter to them. You see, none of us, not even the Apostle Paul, um, journeys alone. We are built to be in community and we therefore need to value those that God has given to us as travelling companions on this journey. If you look around you, these are your travelling companions on the Christian journey. These are your co-workers for Christ. Solomon said, two are better than one because they have good return for their labour. If either one, either one of them falls down, the other can help him up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. You know, the Bible might have looked quite different if Paul had taken a look around Philippi and concluded that the Holy Spirit must have made some sort of terrible mistake. Women down by the river? That can't be right. Lydia? I can't work with her. Well, of course, as it turned out, there was no mistake. And Paul did work with her for many years 
She was open to the gospel. She was astute. She was probably well-connected. She was definitely generous. And she was very, very hospitable. She and her Philippian co-workers shared with Paul a partnership in the gospel which brought them both great joy and saw them both through tremendous suffering and persecution. As a church, we are journeying together and in these last few years, there have been quite a few surprises. Some of them may have excited you. Some of them may have challenged you. Some of them may have made you a little bit uncomfortable. And some of them might be just plain terrifying and you might be looking at that one right now. But as we serve together here, I for one am looking forward to the surprises that God has in store for us as individuals and as a church. You see, for followers of God, life should never be boring because you just never know where you might end up or who you might meet. I for one often find myself in situations like the one I'm in now, but also in relation to our, our two youngest girls and the whole extended family that we now have taken on through them. And I think, how on earth did I get myself here? And then I remember just who it is I'm following and it all makes a kind of crazy, perfect sense. Now, most of you will know that I have um, Irish heritage and we Irish are not known for our wisdom generally, although I think that's a great injustice. But the Irish do have some little pearls of wisdom and I want to share one of them with you today because the Irish have a name for the Holy Spirit. And in spite of what people might say about the Irish, I think our name makes perfect, crazy sense. You see, Celtic people know the Holy Spirit as on God glass. And we are a very straight up and down type of people who generally call things as we see them. And at our heart, Celtic people are also a spiritual people. And over the years, there have been a number of periods of great revival in that part of the world. And as the people there have watched the Holy Spirit at work amongst them, particularly during these periods of great revival or growth, they observed one at work among them who could not be tamed, who was noisy and boisterous and unpredictable and who was frequently interrupting their best made plans. One who was more like the description given by Jesus of the Holy Spirit in John 3.8 where he said of the Holy Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. You see, the Celtic experience of the Holy Spirit was more like the rushing wind or the cleansing fire than the gentle dove that many of us picture when we imagine the Holy Spirit. And so they looked about them and they gave the Holy Spirit this name on God glass after a creature that in spite of man's best efforts has resisted all attempts to tame it. It is noisy and it is boisterous and unpredictable. It is powerful and it is sometimes even a little bit dangerous. It is the wild goose. Followers of God, therefore, are said to be chasing the wild goose.
Now, chasing the wild goose is exactly how I think a Pharisee and former persecutor of Christians ended up by the side of a river teaching Gentile women about Jesus on the Sabbath. It's also how an Asian businesswoman ended up leading the first European Christian church. But it's not just for people whose stories appear in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is active and alive today and he's active and alive even in this church. You see, chasing the wild goose is how a little Australian family from this church ended up ministering in South Sudan. And we heard testimony presented on behalf of one of our newest members several weeks ago in our business meeting, um, giving testimony to how God had changed her fear of Muslim people into a very deep love for them. That is chasing the wild goose. It's how one of our members, a victim of some of the most terrible crimes imaginable, now feels called to go and minister to those people in prisons and their families through prison fellowship. She's chasing the wild goose. It's how God has used another one of our members um, to begin a weekly Christian discussion group in his workplace. It's how we've got past the point of dreaming to actually being able to start renovation works on this building. And it's how a plant pathologist finds herself standing before you today. Surprise, surprise, surprise. It's my prayer that the future of this church would be one great, long and exciting wild goose chase. That we would learn how to earnestly seek the Lord and that we would partner with him through his spirit in ministry. That we would stay close enough to him to discern his will and be prepared to lay aside our own plans for the sake of his. I pray that we would stop asking the Spirit to follow us and bless our plans and instead be prepared to truly follow him and his. And I pray that we would also learn to value those that God has given us here as precious travelling companions for the journey ahead. And so the obvious question that I leave you with this morning is, of course, who's up for a wild goose chase?